Mike, I'm getting married. How awesome is that? Awesome. She loves me for who I am. And, and I love her for who she is. I can't wait to spend the rest of my life with her. Kyle, I slept with her. What? What do you mean, slept? Welcome to the No Film School podcast. My name is Ryan Koo. I'm the founder of No Film School, and I'm happy to bring you an interview today with Michael Covino and Kyle Marvin, who co-wrote and co-star in the buddy comedy The Climb, out now from Sony Pictures Classics. Mike and Kyle write and star in their first feature together, with Mike as a first-time director. And it begs the question, how did they go from two guys working in production around commercials and low-budget films to having their first feature play seemingly every film festival from Cannes to Sundance and get picked up for distribution by Sony Pictures Classics? The short answer is they made a short. The Climb is a fantastically funny two-hander starring Mike and Kyle as they go on a bike ride together. It's a long one that I encourage you to watch. We'll put it on No Film School in the post with this podcast. It's available to watch online. And, uh, it, you know, it's more than just a bike ride. One of them reveals a certain infidelity to the other, which is not a spoiler for the feature version because it happens so early, but in the short, eh, maybe it kind of is. So I encourage you to go watch the short. You'll get a sense of the feel of the feature and i definitely encourage you to watch the feature as well out in theaters now it'll be on digital soon the feature version of the climb follows up on the short as a series of long oneers as it tracks a relationship between the two characters played by mike and kyle and we really talk a lot of shop in this podcast we talk a lot about the importance of rehearsal and of workshopping material of the ability to use audio and the edit to change the story and the performance. And we also talk about a stunt that Kyle does that I'm fairly certain is unprecedented for a screenwriter starring in a movie. Uh, he's lucky to be alive, so stay tuned for that. Sorry for any audio issues. Obviously, we are remote recording during the pandemic. Let's get into it. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. I guess since it's just audio, if if you could just say, hey, I'm Mike and hey, I'm Kyle, so people know who you are as, as we go through this. I'm Mike. This is what my voice sounds like. And I'm Kyle. I'm the one who sounds like a Muppet. So, yeah, <laughs> okay, so if you're listening to this, you can probably tell that the, the climb is a comedy and, and that these guys are already messing with you. Yeah, <laughs> the nasally um, Muppet is Kyle. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So the climb, it's finally out. It's been obviously an odyssey. I'll try to avoid any sort of metaphor about climbing a, a mountain or something. I'm sure you've heard all of them. But, yeah, can never um, get enough. <laughs> but listen, I think since No Film School is a podcast for other filmmakers, not just film watchers, for other filmmakers, it, it can be hard to look at your sort of unbelievable success, right? Cannes, Sundance, Telluride, Toronto, critically acclaimed, a thousand percent of Rotten Tomatoes, whatever it is, and, and, and ask ourselves like, okay, I can't do that. That's too hard to, you know, how, how do I get from here to there? So I wanted to rewind even further back beyond before the pandemic, before the short, before all those things and ask you guys as a starting point, if there's a time that you can remember as a low point years ago <laughs> where you just thought like, this isn't going to work. Like filmmaking is not going to be a thing for me. And if you have memories like, like 
of that nature, I'd love to I'd love to start there. To be honest with you, Ryan, I think I think it still presents itself as, oh, this might be the flash in the pan kind of thing. And before we got a chance to make this film, we were very much like journeymen, just producers, ADs, like doing everything really in film and trying and just making small movies for other filmmakers. I, I made this movie called Kicks and I thought that I was like, oh, this is going to be like give me a whole other thing in my career. And then I was like, and then I made this movie called Hunter Gatherer and Kyle made a movie called Babysitter. And like the, and they, and they went to South by and Tribeca and these great festivals. And I was like, this is it. We finally arrived. I'm a real filmmaker. Now I'm a producer. And then you're like, wait, oh no, but I don't have any money and there's no career and there's no sustainability to this. It was very sobering in that, like, even in, even in the little bit of success that we had just by being a part of those projects, there was really, uh, you know, it was very sobering in that you go, oh, I, I don't know how to do this and make a living as a filmmaker and or as a producer or as anything really, because it's just, especially in the independent space, because it's just, it's just a constant grind and you're always like, you're always fighting for scraps. Yeah. So it was very much up until the point of even when we were making the film, it was like, well, if this doesn't go well, we know what's going to happen. We're going to be back to the drawing board and we're going to be back to trying to figure out how to make a living in this industry. Yeah, I, I met you, Mike, with I think around the time of Kicks, yeah. and that was a long time ago. You know, industry <laughs> for a while. Yeah, and imagine um, how many years I spent leading up to even getting to the point where I got to do that movie. I mean, exactly, I didn't do anything. Yeah, so it, I think it, our mentality. I think our mentality really is just we're in it for the long run. Like we didn't, we we weren't saying like I'm gonna go for three months, and if I don't make it in three months, it's all over. I think for us, we were really like this is gonna be a a trudging grind and we just committed ourselves to the idea that this was the path that we wanted to take and that it was worth the effort and so i don't think i think that way you're never really disappointed by you're always disappointed by by things not going the exact way you want them to but you're just not it doesn't take your legs out from under you yeah it's a really pessimistic way to open a podcast when i decided in earnest that all i wanted to do was this for a living I remember thinking about like how many years I would give it before I would give up. And I landed at 20, which was an arbitrary number, but it was like the age with which I, I felt like I'd be really disappointed and upset with myself if I had nothing to show for it, which was like around 40, I don't know, like 42 or something like that. I was like, if I give it 20 years and I still haven't made a movie and, and have nothing to show for it and have no success in this industry, I should probably go find something else to do. And I think sadly that's like, if I'm giving any advice to people who are like entering this space, it's like, it's all about figuring out how to make a living in even in the parallel path that's in some way affiliated or aligned with film, even if you're not doing exactly what you want to be doing while pursuing your passion, which might be directing or DPing or producing or whatever it is. But that's kind of the grind. It, it was like, for us, it was like, I, it was a win to figure out how to make commercials and that's how I met Kyle and just make a living in like the branded content commercial space because it meant that I could pick up a camera and make enough money to pay my rent. And always knowing that like I gave myself about 20 years to, to become a filmmaker and to be able to make feature films. Absolutely. I think I told myself 10 and that was completely optimistic. <laughs> but this is also good because, you know, for other filmmakers who are working in the you know, commercial production world, kicking around, making some spots and, and who have their sights set on one day getting that feature made. You guys represent the possibility of doing that. Is that how you guys met in that world? 
Yeah, we met on a commercial in New York. I was I was the on-screen talent and Kyle was the creative director. He like came up with the idea. And and they needed someone to walk up to people on the street and buy them things. Like it was like a man on the street kind of thing. <laughs> and I was the really outgoing person who they hired to walk up to strangers. Awesome. And and so you found you had similar sensibilities and then, you know, you guys in a way get married by making a film together. When I made the short version of Amateur, which I think I actually remember talking with with Mike about, I was making that because I wanted to make a feature and I'd already written some drafts of the feature. When you went to make the short, The Climb, did you have designs on making a feature version or was it just focused on making this hilarious buddy short? I definitely think there's some people out there who go out to just make a short, but I don't think we were doing that. We were very aware of kind of the model and the landscape and what and that you need the short to be the calling card to instill confidence in financiers to get the feature made. It, it was deliberate in that way, but I do think we thought of the short as its own thing, and we we thought of it as this is just its own piece of art. That it, it's it's one idea, very short, simple, well executed. If that if we do it right, hopefully that'll work, and that will be and that will give people a sense of the aesthetic that we're going for and the tone and the feel uh, for what the feature would be, which we had already flushed out. We, we had flushed out the story for the feature and what it would look like and how it would all play out. So when we when we premiered the film at Sundance, when we premiered the short at Sundance, we, we were actually just taking meetings the whole, the whole festival and pitching financiers on the feature. Do you think there's a scenario where you ever could have gotten this feature made without that short? Probably no, not. No way. No just solely on the idea that like we're two unknowns on a talent side for someone to put any money into a movie like that of just like hey trust us we want to do these insane long takes with two people who we've never seen or mike had acted before or been on camera in, in shorts and movies and features but i hadn't so just the fact that like we got that vote of confidence from people seeing it and saying oh yeah i get it i see the dynamic i see the tone i see visually what you're going for those went a long way in gaining confidence in terms of what we could do yeah i mean when you say it it sounds insane yeah it also right it also for me it was like a it was almost uh the fact that i was a you know that that i knew people in, in independent film as a producer was actually worked to a detriment for me if i was trying to raise money as for to direct or to act because they were like i don't understand you directed this and you're in it and i was like yeah and they were like, but you're a producer. And I was like, I know producers can also make, can direct and act and do it like, and right. But I think people have these kind of boxes that they like to put people in and they're like, okay, this is a producer. And then when they hear, oh, a producer wants to go direct something like, ooh, and they start to cringe and they start to get nervous. And it actually made it much easier to just make the short and then premiere it at Sundance and let people see it. And they go, dude, that was awesome. Oh my God, I love that. What do you do? You know, and then it opened up the conversation in an organic way rather than, trying to sell people on something that they couldn't imagine. So for people who haven't seen it, we will embed the short with this post on No Film School. Uh, but it, it's a it's a wonner and it's a long take. And you guys said that you had this idea of, for a feature sketched out already in advance. So was it always the feature tracks a relationship over uh, a period of roughly the number of years that Kyle gave it to make it in film. <laughs> and then each one of these segments is going to be also a one or was that always the, the conception? Yeah, I think there was something to, uh, there was a lot that we really responded to with this idea of 
long uninterrupted takes and and trying to do comedic beats and yet sustain sort of an emotional an emotional harmonic to the thing and that really was part of the whole idea of this long uninterrupted take because you're never leaving the scene you're never given a break and so you're sort of stuck in this moment with these people and you're feeling the silence and you're feeling the the pain of the physical torture of riding a bike up a hill and those were all really integral parts of what we found interesting about one the story and two sort of tone and sensibility we were looking for in this film yeah there's a lot of art imitating life imitating art in this movie in terms of making a movie can feel like riding a bike up the most ridiculously steep hill but also your film being about uh stuck with someone uh, co-writing right. <laughs> as you guys have done together is is also being stuck with someone for better or for worse i'm, I'm curious about the the writing process given that you guys were both going to be acting in it how much of it was sitting there and typing and how much of it was sitting there just riffing and improving i mean you know the, the writing process was felt this was probably the most organic um writing process I've ever had on something because we were, we really implicitly knew the characters we were playing. So we were writing these and we understood the structure of the scenes. So we would write the scenes and then we would workshop them in an acting class and we would put them up and we would go back and, and, and rewrite them based on kind of notes that we took away from maybe performing that scene. And that really allowed us to, to dial into and, and work out a lot of the beats in advance because we, re- we just didn't want to improvise a lot. So we really wanted to avoid improvisation on the day, and which meant rehearsal became our place for improvisation. So we could really dial in, n- knowing where jokes will land, knowing where, where the rhythm of the scene needs to pick up and the pacing between the cadence of how the actors are talking. And that really, that was the secret. And that was the answer to if we were going to do this in single takes, which we intended to, but always knew that we could pull the the ripcord and, and the ejector seat if we absolutely, if it absolutely, if we had to, and if it felt like it was being a bit, if it just felt too forced, right? Like if we got on set and we were like, why are we still sitting in this scene? We were like, okay, we'll shoot coverage and we'll get out of this. But Which we never ended up doing. We never ended up doing. And I think that was because our DP, who's amazing, and, and I really, we pushed ourselves and it really gave us these kind of constraints and these these limitations that allowed us to to find motivation for the camera that maybe we wouldn't have even been thinking with otherwise if we had the option of cutting. We could have kind of been a bit lazier and and fallen back on some of the things that we know that work often as opposed to at every moment going, what is motivating the camera to not move or move in a certain way at this moment? Yeah, before we get into the thrill and the challenge of executing the oneers, I think you said something that's really important for filmmakers earlier in their career to realize, which is that you were workshopping this in, as you mentioned, an acting class. And I think a lot of times with the sort of auteur mentality that filmmakers have, it's like you don't want to let other people into the process or you don't want to get feedback on something. You guys knew your voice. As you said, you knew the characters really well and the the beats you were trying to hit. So you were comfortable with opening that up in class and, and hearing what other people uh, we're telling you, and, and you know how much did that process impact the scenes? Well, I, Ryan, I think what you said is interesting because this idea of like auteur kind of point of view of filmmaking, to me, I feel like that's a total misconception on what authorship of a film is because I don't know any filmmakers really. I'm sure they exist. I'm sure maybe Kubrick was right, but I don't know any filmmakers who really just have it all perfectly in their head exactly how they have it, and they just 
want people to be like the vessels for just do what I, exactly what I want and what I say right now and don't give me anything. Most of the time for me, this whole process, both writing and directing, really comes from a place of like immense collaboration where Kyle and I really act simply as arbiters of what's good and what's not. We're almost tastemakers and it's our taste and our curation of good ideas from the collaborators that we work with that is what kind of brings us to the finish line with something that feels like potentially a singular idea or a point of view. But it's not us creating it from scratch or feeling any sort of... There was never any feeling threatened by other points of view or other collaboration, because at the end of the day, it had to filter through what we were going for. So that came in the writing process with really taking ideas from actors that we were working with, we didn't end up even being in the film, to, to friends who would read it and give us feedback to then the department heads that we bring on. In some ways, having other people push on our ideas, it can solidify you in your position as well. So I think it's healthy to be able to have people question your choices and for you to reflect on that. And you don't have, it doesn't mean you have to take everyone's advice or struggle with it, or you just have to put it through yourself as a filter and decide, like, honestly and openly, is this better or, or is this not useful in this case? And in the case of The Climb, given it's a, a series of oneers, you're making those decisions in advance far more than a lot of filmmakers, especially indie filmmakers who might find it in the edit. And I want to get to the challenge of executing oneers. I mean, your whole movie is, is basically like that. So in terms of preparing to do that, you mentioned a close relationship with your DP. Were you storyboarding because it was the two of you starring? Was there a lot of rehearsal? Like, how did you prepare in advance of, of the shoot? I think the decision to, to shoot it the way we shot it was a product of a few things. Obviously, the, the most important thing was that it creatively felt like the right choice to have this uh, this immediacy while, of not cutting and being there, but also removing the potential for it being too cinema verite by having elaborate camera moves and choreography and blocking within the scene of that just felt like it, it, this couldn't have possibly happened by chance. This is definitely deliberate. But the main, one of the other key reasons why we wanted to do it this way was because it locked us into a, to a process that solved a lot of the problems that we had experienced or frustrations we had experienced on previous independent films where we didn't have enough time on the day or we were marching through setups and we were tr you're trying to shoot like eight pages a day or whatever you're trying to shoot on these 18 day features and you're just grinding and you're finally getting to the good stuff and you're finally your actors are finally opening it up and finding something new in the performance in a pivotal moment or scene and you have to get out of it because you're going to go into overtime or you have to move on because you're not going to get this other key scene. And that was a real frustration. And that was something that I found like we, we were losing some of the magic on the day when on some of those movies, because we just didn't give it the opportunity to really find the, the for the scene to find itself. And so when we shot this film, we had a full day of rehearsal for every scene. We, we would have a full day of rehearsal with blocking with camera and actors and everything. And we would just be dialing in all the moving pieces and getting that really down to a science. And then the following day is when we'd start going for uh, performance and we would start dialing in the performance and getting everything together once we had worked out all the variables from a blocking standpoint. But, but, but even so, I mean, this was an independent film. So we literally had one day of rehearsal, one day of shooting for every scene. 
So the stakes were still extremely high and there wasn't a lot of room. There was a lot of uh, pre-production. There's a lot of pre-production and, and like technical, like scouting of the locations and understanding from the get-go when we land, this is how, you know, this is how we're going to approach it. And then that would dial in on our prep day if things were changing. Then on our shoot day, it was from first shot up to the end, it was take after take and each one, you know, could be the one that's going to make the movie. So the, the stakes were incredibly high on those second days when everyone was like, this is it, we're, we're 13 takes in and we're, the light's already moving on us and we got limited time for everyone to hit their the technical teams to hit their marks all the performers to hit their hit their lines and and you know do what they needed to do in order to get the take the stakes were really high for us on the day and it was somewhat mitigated by our preparation but it was still very intense that's incredible that every scene that you shot every scene in a day how how many takes did you max out at and was was there ever a time that you nailed it like super early and you know were surprised that things came together i mean there's there was definitely some scenes that we had workable takes early on uh but what we found was what what we found was that we would always find new things and we would always discover more and we would if we got it in take 5 or 6 we'd be like okay we have we have 5 more hours or 6 more hours what can we uncover? And, and I think out of that came just like things that we wouldn't have expected. And that was very rare. I think there was like one scene where that happened. And then the most challenging scene was probably 36, to like 38 takes, I want to say. Yeah. I was which which, which, was which of the scenes was that? I think the longest one we did. Keep in mind, we actually, the setup on this one was actually happened very quickly. So we were rolling takes on day one. So we actually had like almost mm. a night and a half to shoot this. Uh, I think it was the hospital scene. Yeah. And I think it was just everyone moves a bit slower and it, on those overnights. And it was our first, it was at the very early on in the shoot. And we had just come back from France. So we were on like a totally different time zone because we, we started shooting in New York, flew to France for the opening to shoot that, and were there for two days and then flew right back and went right into overnights. Yeah, in upstate New York. And we like our dolly moves and that were incredibly. There were so many crazy, complicated moving parts. Just because um, the doorway was so narrow that it almost couldn't fit through, yeah. and so he would he was like threading the needle by like an inch on both sides. Dylan was amazing. The, the, the dolly grip was incredible. He was a ballerina when he probably doesn't want me to, to promote this. He was a ballerina when he was a kid, and then got into like heavy metal, death metal later on. So he's like this great mix of of very fleet footed and also. Very hardcore. It was awesome. I mean, you need that as as actors and performers. If you're nailing it, and then something goes wrong with a camera glitch or something, and that causes the whole thing to start back at one, that I could see how heartbreaking that would be. So it's interesting. You, you didn't shoot it in order. Then you were you were sort of jumping around. We tried as best we could to shoot in order, but there was definitely there were just some limitations. Like we we shot the end of the film earlier on because because we had to and then we had to wait for winter so we kind of we shot everything but the winter scenes and then we came back to the winter and and we had to kind of wait for frozen lakes and things like that speaking of frozen lakes kyle does something incredible in this movie that i i wasn't sure what i was seeing when i was watching it and i was trying to in my head as a filmmaker and as an indie filmmaker trying to think about how you could have possibly faked it i'm like wow did they get a tank or something how is kyle not actually in this freezing lake was what i was thinking as i was watching it and then 
Kyle gave me the answer afterwards. So Kyle, I'm glad that you're still here with us today. Yeah. Can you explain how you guys pulled off the scene where you are in a freezing lake, both in the movie and then as far as I know, that was also in reality? Yeah, from the outset of the of the pitch on the movie, we had always had the scene where we thought it was, we thought it'd be really fun to for me to fall through a frozen lake in the middle of the scene. And at the at our initial pre production meeting, the the uh, financiers were like, "Okay, this is great. So how are we going to do this? How are we going to fake this frozen lake scene?" And we were like, "No, no, we're just gonna we're just gonna do it." And, and they were like, "Okay, we'll put that off until later." And, uh, and then as we just got closer and closer to the scene, it was something that we just decided was important. So I had to, I, I, took, I, I went through training. I, did, I got really into Wim Hof and started doing ice baths and getting my body ready for the, the strain of plunging into a frozen lake. And then trained with a diving team that, that do New York cold water body rescues and did a bunch of scuba training with them. And then those guys became my support team for the actual stunt itself, which involves them being under the ice i fall through and i have to swim under the ice shelf and find my uh, a scuba diver who was five feet away under the ice we'd find each other he'd give me a breathing regulator off his back and i would plug into that and get some breaths of oxygen and try and try and stay relaxed and then 40 seconds or so later he'd get a chirp in his ear he'd rip the breathing regulator out of my mouth and push me back towards the hole and I'd swim up and come out. We, we just did, we just went for it. And, and honestly, one of the biggest issues is when we finally, we had to wait for the ice to be thick enough for us to film on top of it. And when we finally got up there and everyone was ready, the day ended up being minus 16, I think, when we started filming. Part of the challenge was just the coldness above the ice. The ice, the, the water itself was 30 degrees. And then it was like coming out of a ice bath into a freezing air on top. So that became almost as much of a challenge as the water itself. Oh man, that's incredible. The, the short answer right. is I just made him do it. Yeah. We definitely <laughs> had the conversation where I was like, are we, are we doing this? And Mike's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tomorrow we're going to strap weights on your ankles and you're going to fall through. And after all that training, Kyle, at the last minute, you said, yeah, I think this would be better, Mike, if you fell through. Yeah, <laughs> we definitely talked we talk, about We it. talked about it. We couldn't get, I wanted to go in and pull him out. It was just, we oh, couldn't wow. get everyone on board with. We couldn't get everyone on board. We had a version of the scene where I pull him out yeah. and then I go in and then I do CPR on him, which is what everyone was hoping for. It was just two characters to kiss at some point anyway. And uh, they were just like, okay, we're not clearing two of you in the water at the same time. It's just not, it was basically like we had pushed so hard to yeah. get what we needed to get yeah. that it, there was no audibling to the scene would be better if we did this. They were just like, no, it's cleared. It's approved. Do it and be done. I think there was I think there was a lot of nervousness just all around. Yeah, there was an insurance guy on standing there watching this thing for sure with with his finger on the red button to cancel the whole thing if it looked like I was. I remember I had characters riding bikes in my film and they were like this is a stunt you need x y and z. Obviously you're riding bikes in this movie but just the obstacle to get that approved is incredible and so Kyle you're under there for how long and I'm assuming the divers are under there in 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 dry suits or whatever totally. they have on. Yeah, they yeah. they they were fully prepared. They looked like they were on the moon with their spacesuits. They had I mean with their suits they had these oxygen filled thermal outfits so they could stay under there for long periods of time. No and then you had to go under for how long and then once you get 
out of it, as you said, then you're still freezing for the remainder. I'd be under for about 40 seconds each time, which is a, the second your body goes underwater like that, it's it's like a freight train was sitting on my head. It was a lot of uh, it was a lot of cold and it was pretty intense physically. Like a really intense brain freeze. Yeah, it was like the most long. intense brain freeze. It was so bad that when I came out of the ice, when we cut at the end of the take, you could tap my, my eyeballs themselves. You could tap them and they were like, you could thunk them when you tapped them. Good so Lord. as soon as the, as soon as it got, as soon as they cut, the team would rush in with warm water and hit the frostbite for the first like frostbite parts of my body, my nose, my ears, and then try and regulate my core body temperature. And then, and then I would warm up and then we'd do it again, basically, which was insane. I, I hope you got it in fewer than 38 takes. That wasn't yeah, the 38 takes, Dean. I think we did six or seven. <laughs> yeah, that was about enough. Oof. So Kyle survives. I also just want to talk a little bit more about what it was like, the atmosphere on set with the crew and everything. Obviously, the crew of every film is really important. But when you're doing these wonders, like if any one department has a mistake or something, then the whole thing can fall apart. Yeah, it's funny. It was like it, everyone was under the same pressure, which was really, really great. Like it was very, it had this really camaraderie team <laughs> energy on set, especially in the days when we were shooting, because everyone, you know, your focus puller and everyone was on, you know, the edge of their seat, not being wanting to be the one to, to mess up the take, but also so happy when, you know, the performers hit their their marks in conjunction with him hitting his focus or steady cam making it around the corner or art department prepping a, a thing that pays off in in the scene. So I think there was this great sort of sense of almost like it was a sporting event, like each one was a was a game and everyone was in on this together and we're supporting each other to, you know, because everyone was reliant on every other department to pull their yeah. weight. Otherwise the whole thing didn't work. I remember there was like like one one shot that always sticks out to me is we were shooting this wedding scene and it was up it was like up in the high 20s we were getting into takes and it was like oh my god are we going to get this and it was so many moving pieces and it was so complicated and there was so much relied on performance and Gail our lead actress was giving everything she had and we finally got this one take where we just nailed it and I and it and the camera like they finished their big pivotal moment. We got through the, the hardest emotional moment in the scene and it like worked. The light was beautiful. The light was at the perfect moment in the sky. It was like peeking through and the camera's just like panning around to go back over to this priest to like finish off the scene. And there's just, and there's just one of our grips standing there with a bounce board in, and he, in the middle of the frame just and the camera just pans past him and goes to the end of the scene. And I remember being in post being like, Maybe we just keep it. Like maybe we just maybe we just lean into it. And like he's just, staring at the camera. He looked so petrified, and he tried to move one way and then the other, and then gave up. Like it was like you know he, he was doing it almost like a football juke, and then he just gave up. He's like, no, I'm I'm in this shot. Yeah, and 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 you know that was like a product of of so many different things. Like that wasn't his fault at right. all. Like we were right. we were audibling. You know, Zach and I had it down to a science where like if a certain thing happened, he would either pan the camera or do like, he was like audibling the shot and the operation of the shot in the moment based on the, I think the light, or I, I forget what the reason was, but it was insane. And it just happened to get caught on that one thing. And I remember being like, Oh my God, I feel so bad for him. But also I just remember right after that, Gail, our, our actress just lying in the middle of the floor in the church and just crying and just like hysterically crying, like, no, I can't do this again. And, you know, she obviously did it again. And we ended up getting the take maybe two or three later. But it was, um, 
it, it, it got really, really challenging. Like there were some, there were some scenes that were the hardest things I've ever done. And I'm imagining Kyle's ever done just in terms of trying to, trying to get there performance wise with all these other things happening. And like you fix one thing and another thing breaks and then you fix another thing and, and, and another part breaks. And it was really hard. And I think the hardest part about post was making the decision on what the priority is. Cause a lot of these takes, you know, some of the best performances in this movie are not in the film. They're on the cutting room floor because they were in a take where there was just another piece that ended up becoming more important. And that was a really, that was something that I don't desire to do again, where I have to like lose one of the best moments that we captured entirely just because like this other emotional moment is more important to the story. Yeah. I mean, you're taking out one of the biggest tools in the filmmaker's arsenal of being able to edit together a performance, uh, cause you have to use yeah. it start to finish. Um, in the editing process, I'm curious what that was like, other than looking at the, the takes and deciding wh what you want to prioritize, you know, the one that has the best camera movement versus the one that has the best performance from Mike versus the one that has the best performance from Kyle. Were you doing any sort of a, you know, 1917 style, like finding a way to combine a take or hide an edit? Or was it really just about selecting what was going to uh, be the one? We, yes, we used everything at our disposal. So we, if we could hide a cut, we would hide a cut. We ended up not hiding a, a lot of cuts yeah. because we um, either didn't have to or it just ended up not working out that the other take was better. But I, I will say that the one thing I really learned from this process was how much power and how much, how much flexibility you have in sound and sound editing and sound design. And that really became the biggest tool uh, we had for crafting this story is we could remove jokes if it was off camera or we could ADR in or we could pull from other takes. Like a lot of what we did before we even got to ADR was having every line reading of a take from all, for, of a certain part of the scene from every different take and hearing the intonation of and the inflection of how it was said and then maybe putting that into someone's mouth so someone might be saying something in the film that's actually from take seven but it's take 14 that we're using and we started there and that became like how do we if if we're saying too much or if, or if there's too many jokes here and we want to just parse it, sparse it out a little then we would remove a joke and we would just let it sit in silence or we would add in someone saying something off camera and we built the rhythm of the film with the soundscape more than I probably ever would have done if we shot this thing traditionally. And then by the time we brought in our editor, I think it really became a, a matter of truly editing. Like the, the scenes, there are heads and, and tails of, all, of a lot of these scenes that didn't make it in the movie where we cut, we, we were just like, oh yeah, you, if you cut out early here, it's what, it's what the movie needs at this moment. And then also, it really was a puzzle piece emotionally of being like, this take combined with this take combined with this scene combined with this scene combined with this scene makes what we want. And, and it took a lot of dialing in of what happens if you go from this take of this scene to this take of this next scene. Okay, that didn't work. What happens if you... And so a lot of it became about what Mike was saying, which was like, this might be the best, the funniest, you know, and most beautiful shot we've ever seen but it needs to be thrown away because what we actually need is this maybe smaller piece of the movie, but it's a smart, smaller piece of the scene, but maybe more critical to the overall success of the movie. So that was really killing our darlings in that way at the very end. That's interesting what you say, though, also about audio. I hadn't thought about that, but it does make me remember, which is a good tip for other filmmakers, how much you can use those other takes. I definitely remember being surprised at how much you can 
even for someone who's on camera, take audio from a different take that had a different emotional feeling to it, and it lip syncs up and and makes a, a makes a performance. And even if it doesn't lip lip sync up, you look at some of the greatest films ever made. We talk about this, and they would choose Scorsese, Coen Brothers, every Italian film made before 2010. <laughs> you 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 look at the disregard they have for lip sync because they just care deeply about, oh no, this needs to be said or this moment needs to be there or whatever. And it's like, yeah, of course we'll overlook that. If it's egregious, that's not ideal. But I I, I will say that we actually, I think, did a decent job with lip sync, but I, I just think that there's this tool in the arsenal of filmmaking in sound editing that is just very often underutilized because you're like, oh no, let's cut away. And I think you're really only dealing with whatever's in front of the in the frame, and oftentimes there's so much happening outside the frame that you can manipulate with sound. That when people think back on the film, they will they might even remember that the person was on camera when they said that line. When in fact they're off camera, and when you're looking at the reverse shot, and it's but you misremember it because we're really just picking up all the information and putting it together in our memory. Yeah, I think really in independent cinema, sound and sound design and ADR and all those things is a really underutilized tool in our so you guys you you survived the freezing cold temperatures the editing process of killing your darlings or not being able to use the best moment and then you have this incredible festival run and you get to especially now that we're all stuck at home and in uh quarantine you, you got to go out there with your film into the world and watch it with a live audience at, at all these festivals can you just Tell us how that felt to to be at the other end of this insane creative work process and then actually be able to uh, experience it with others. And also, I, I know from having watched you guys that you had fun with that just as you did with the movie in terms of how you would huh. do a Q&A or how you would make an appearance in front of audiences. So, yeah, I just want to hear about the festival experience and, and what that meant to you guys. Yeah, so we got into Cannes first and that, that, pro- that was really surreal because up until the very last minute we were we were working on the film we took the dcp with us to cam like we were working on it up until the very last minute in terms of finishing color and sound and all, trying to get a finish on the film before can so we arrived at can still half in our own minds on the edit and did we get everything right? And there were still some errors and we're doing it anyway. It came on, it came on really fast. So I, I, at least for me personally, I wasn't ready for it at all when we got there and I had never been to Cannes. So it was, it got pretty overwhelming pretty fast in terms of just the scale of it. And we arrived quietly. No one really was aware of us when our film got in and before the festival. And then while we were there, it caught on amongst people talking and people started stopping us on the street and, and it, it had this groundswell front at Cannes, so it was wild to watch it build around us and for the excitement to grow amongst filmmakers who we revere, who are there watching the movies, and then also just people around us in the festival. And then you, and then that support continued. You took home an award from Cannes, right? Yeah, that was really crazy. Yeah, it was. Cannes was like one of those bucket list things that I always dreamed of playing a film there. I didn't imagine it would happen in my first film, even though like secretly we in the back of our minds always hoped that we could premiere this film there. I think that's maybe partially why we shot the opening scene like 30 minutes outside of Cannes, just because yeah, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't like 
I don't think I don't I don't think we ever thought like, if we shoot if we shoot down the street they'll they'll accept us. But I do think I, I like as a producer and as um, someone who just loves film. I had been going to Cannes over the years just to watch movies and and really get a sense of what was going on in world cinema. And so I had this reverence for the festival that was like a, a bit a bit over the top. And, and I had kind of seen, you know, I've been to the premieres and watched the red carpet like before you're watching everyone go in and you see the, whole, the, the pomp and circumstance of that whole place. And I was like, oh my God, I knew the significance of if we got in there, what was about to go down, even if, and, and by the way, it also meant if, if the movie's not good, it means we'll get booed. And I knew that was like a, a very strong reality because they don't hold back at that festival. It, it, it felt very high stakes and to go there and then go on this ride where the film wasn't booed where we got a really like lovely standing ovation and, and ended up selling the film at the festival and, and then capped it off with like an award was, uh, I mean, that took a lot to catch up on. And that was something that I just, I, we just went on the ride of and got back to the U S and finally like maybe started taking it in because it was really unimaginable. That was truly like the, dream as a filmmaker for me to be able to have an experience like that with any film, let alone my first. Yeah. And the crazy thing was, is that any of those film festivals that we went to, like Telluride, Sundance, you know, South by Southwest, all, all of those in Toronto, all of those are films that in the independent film world, you're like, God, if I could get into one of those festivals and to go on this ride where we went to all of them with this one film was, it was surreal. It was crazy. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, to your point earlier, Kyle, you said, if I give it 20 years, right? Like over those 20 years, you could have made 12 movies that never played a major festival and, and didn't have this, this kind of incredible success story. So to have at the, I don't know, the end of the 20 years, deep into that number of years to make the one that does all these things beyond what anyone, any filmmaker's reasonable expectations could be. That's like the kind of dramatic structure that works really well in movies, at least. So it seems like yeah. um, that well, it was, must have been rewarding. Yeah, Ryan, I think it was a product of like a lot of years of being around it and being really close and making films that we thought were good, even as producers that maybe didn't have that trajectory or weren't that well received or played a bunch of regional festivals, but never got into a big festival. And I think, I think that experience and candidly, like one of the best things I ever did was I started going to festivals and just watching films. And I think yeah, that I really, um, you know, you, you just, you get on the pulse of like, you're like, oh, I get it. I get what's going on. I get the decisions that I could make that maybe are cool decisions, but that, and it's not even that you're trying to reverse engineer something, but a decision that I could make that a festival programmer will see 40 other films making that same decision and dealing with that same subject matter. And while it might be interesting, it might just dilute the whole experience of making a film about this character going through this at this time in their life. And so maybe I choose to do something else, or maybe I choose to structure it differently. Or maybe I just think with like, how do I break outside of what what the what a lot of films are doing? Like what is in the zeitgeist right now? Like how do I do something that subverts that a little bit? And, and I think that was very conscious for us. Like if we were going to make a film that was about two guys, like two friends, two, two dudes who were friends forever, like we really didn't want it to be too talky and just fly on the wall and shot with an easy rig in an apartment and, and have it be very um, improv improv yeah. and, and only because I knew the limitations that were, like I knew that where we, 
one, it didn't feel like the type of film we wanted to make, but also it was like, it would be so hard to break through if you don't have a cinematic point of view on top of that, or you don't, you're not having a conversation within or a dialogue within the cinema landscape. And that I think is the most crucial thing is like being aware of what conversation is going on in cinema. And are you contributing to that in any way, shape or form at the moment when you make the film? And I think in, in conjunction with that, it's also expanding your horizons outside of the American, you know, film world and and really looking at films because i think there's a lot of really inspiring work coming from other countries and other cultures that are you know pushing at cinema in these very incredible ways and they're looking at at sort of the art of film in in different lenses that i think are really open at least for me really opened my eyes and my mind to to, you know what cinema could be uh, not just what I go to in American theaters over and over. Absolutely. Well, it all paid off. And, you know, all of those festival trips seem like they really, <laughs> they really worked. And again, I think you made a valuable point, Mike, about it. It's, it's not about reverse engineering it, right? Your own sensibility shown through in part because you'd seen so many great movies at festivals. So it seems a full circle for you to then make a contribution that will hopefully influence another filmmaker to realize what they can do with cinema. Guys, thanks so much for coming on. We really enjoyed having you. I think there's there's so much valuable here that you've shared with us. And I really just love the movie and want to say congratulations. Can't wait to see the next one. Mike, don't make Kyle go in the water again. I'll come up with something much worse. <laughs> and by the way, thank you for your podcast and, yeah. and everything you're doing for, yeah. for the independent cinema world. and for Yeah, we're big fans of No Film School. Yeah. Always have been. Yep. All right. Thanks, guys. Enjoy the ride. Uh, oh, man. That was actually, that was unintentional. You did it. <laughs> you waited till the very end. <laughs> waited till the very end. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to the No Film School podcast. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. We've got a bunch more interviews coming your way. Uh, and if you have a filmmaking question, you can email us at ask at nofilmschool.com for our weekly show to take a stab at answering your question. Thanks for listening. <laughs>